Love the British monarchy? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Hi, all. Kinsey here with the To Die For Daily podcast, and I am with a familiar face to the podcast historian and political commentator David Oldroyd Bolt. It's now been a year almost since the Queen has passed. Tell me about that experience. Did I see, I, I saw you at the coronation. I saw you at the yeah. coronation of King Charles. But um, Tell me what the experience was like when the Queen passed. Where were you when you found out? How did you react to it? How did you celebrate her life? Mm. Well, it's rather odd because I was in the country where the Queen was when she acceded to the throne. I was in Kenya. Um, quite by chance, I was spending last September there with my dearest friend has moved there. So I went out to see him for the first time there. And uh, yeah, I was in Nairobi uh, in in a place called the Masega Club when um, the news started to filter through, um, you know, and my phone was buzzing with Twitter notifications and things like that. And I sat there in the garden with a with a friend, and we sort of watched as the news unfolded. And then, well, we had a glass of champagne and sort of toasted, well, toasted the late queen, but also the the, the king. Um, and then I think two or three days later, I drove up to Treetops, which is where uh, the queen actually was when she became queen when King George VI died in 1952, which I'm sad to say is now pretty derelict and uh, not in a good condition. But it was it was really quite odd being there rather than being here. So I missed being here when the Queen died. I, I missed the lying in state. I missed the funeral. I had to watch it all from, uh, you know, five and a half thousand miles distance, wow. uh, which was unusual. But as you say, I was here for the, for the co- uh, coronation of the King and we saw each other, I think, the night before outside Buckingham Palace, we throwing it down with rain. <laughs> it was. There was so much rain. Um, <laughs> you know, what what did you say to Mark Dolan that night? Were you confident in in King Charles? Were you confident that he was going to make an, a, a wonderful monarch? I've always been rather more pro the king than I think a great many people here. Um, although there are issues on which I thought that he went farther than his constitutional position as Prince of Wales would in previous years have allowed. For instance, his great uh, work on uh, climate change. But I think he's, he was a very, very good Prince of Wales. I think he did the job with great uh, dignity and application. Of course, he, there are reports of uh, his foibles and uh, difficulties, but everybody has those. And when you live under the lens as the king has done for his entire life, uh, it's more likely that those are going to be reported. But I said to Mark on that night, and I maintain, I think the, the king... Uh, is set up to do an extremely good job because he had the longest apprenticeship in history. I mean, he he uh, spent 1952 until 2022 learning how to do the job yeah. uh, and his entire upbringing and education and uh, formation have been with the idea that one day he'll be the sovereign, be the monarch. Uh, so I think he, he proved to me over and over and over again, and I think to the entire nation, while he was Prince of Wales, that he had the stuff that he took to be a good monarch. And I think he's proving that now as the king. That's a great transition. Um, we've almost spent 
you know, a year since we lost the queen. So that's a year of a King Charles reign. What would you judge him if I gave you one to five stars on his first year? What, what would be your grade for King Charles? Well, I would give him a solid four stars, four and a half stars, perhaps. I don't think anybody can achieve perfection. So five stars is impossible. But um, I think he's done <laughs> very well. I, I, there was a fear, I think, uh, before the queen died. And I remember discussing this once with Robert Hardman, the royal biographer and uh, commentator. There was a fear, I think, that the nation would sort of fall apart, that there'd be a great psychological trauma. But I think the king and it must be said the queen, Camilla, have handled the transition beautifully. The machinery uh, has worked beautifully. The prince and princess of Wales, the Duke and Duchess of Edinburgh, have all stepped up and it seemed like the thing that it actually is, a perfectly natural transition from one generation to another. Um, I think the fear was basically because it hadn't happened for so long and because the Queen was such an enormous figure, not just in our lives, but in on the world stage. Mm. I think the fear was that it would be a traumatic moment for the nation, that we would suddenly have to be introspective and think, oh gosh, where do we go now? But actually, we've proved to ourselves that we aren't that fragile and that we can just move on uh, you know, showing that death is a natural part of life and that as one monarch dies, another comes seamlessly, immediately into that position. You know, the, the, the reign begins at the moment that the previous monarch dies. There is no transitional period. It's not like a, you know, an election where you have that bedding in period. Uh, for instance, you know, in the US presidential election where you have those two months where it's a sort of transition, it's just instantaneous. And I think that's the reason that I, I was always confident that it would be perfectly well done, and also because the royal household has spent so many years planning for this, and the broadcasters have spent so many years making sure that their material was ready, that I think yeah, it was it was always to me likely to go well rather than likely to go badly, and uh, His Majesty has proved that. Beautifully said. Um, what do you think about? Because I was just thinking about the last twelve months, the idea of um two prime ministers in such a short amount of time is that i i wanted to i mean generally and i can't talk because look at my former president and my president today but generally you would think that that would meet you know to the world that might look unsettling but it does seem like nope everybody's already forgotten about it and it it you know, it, there's not a bruise or there's not a stain on the country because of it. Does King Charles or does the monarchy's position have anything to do with that? Yes, I think it has an enormous amount to do with it because it's constant. Mm. Whatever is going on in electoral politics, whatever the governing party is doing to itself, you know, chopping and changing leader more often than most of us change our shoes. The <laughs> The royal family is constant. The, the sovereign is constant, whether that's the late queen or the current king, uh, and above it. And I think this is one of the, I've said this many times in public, uh, I think it's one of the reasons that constitutional monarchy is, for me, the, the stablest, the securest, and the most highly to be desired form of government. Because whatever is going on at the political level, there is always something beyond that, which a presidency can never match, because a presidency is inherently political. Um, and so I think, you know, we've seen yet again the, the sound judgment of the British having a monarchy. And Love I it. hope that one day you will come and join us again. <laughs>
even if it's just me, even if on a boat, Always because apparently you guys welcome everybody that shows up on a boat. So maybe I'll maybe I'll have to resort to that. We'll give um, you a dinghy. Thank you. I would greatly appreciate it. Okay, so I asked you, I challenged you a little bit um, because, you know, everybody's talking about AI right now. Everybody has feelings about AI. I'm personally terrified of it. Yep. Um, but we're going to use AI today to collect the most searched questions on the Internet associated with the royal family. Um, you're going to answer them for me. And I just want to stress how much I trust you way more <laughs> over artificial intelligence. And I know that my Thank audience you. does, too. <laughs> All right. And this one might be a long one, but it was asked so often that I felt like I could not ignore it. Um, how does the royal family begin? How did the royal family become royal? Why do they exist? And you know, what's the royal origin story? Those I feel like are all the same questions. So I packed them into to to yep. question number one. Okay. Well, the first king of uh, overall king of England was Alfred the Great in the ninth century after Christ, uh, eight seventy one. Before that, there had been what was known as the Heptarchy, the, king, the kingdom was made up of seven different kingdoms, or rather the nation was made of seven different kingdoms. Uh, Alfred was the first to be the king of all seven. So you really date the royal family from that. As for monarchy as an institution, it's as old as human history. You know, Homer uh, talks of kings. Uh, uh, so, and every civilization that we know of has had some form of monarchy and, and, or some form of governance that would be recognizable to the modern sensibility as being monarchy. Uh, so it seems that it's an inherent part of our nature to wish to have some ruler and often someone who is uh, considered in that position to be divinely ordained. Uh, we seem to have this need for it. Um, but the, the British royal family, I'd say, begins with Alfred the Great. So you have the House of Wessex, and then uh, in 1066, that changed, and we had the Norman Conquest, and William, Duke of Normandy, uh, came from France because there was the conflict between him and Harold Godwinson, Harold II. Um, Edward the Confessor, St. Edward the Confessor, who was the uh, king before Harold Godwinson, um, had promised both of them the throne at various times. Uh, but given that Harold II was in the country when Edward the Confessor died, he seized the throne. He went up to the north and beat uh, an invading Danish army, uh, uh, so, well, Viking army, essentially, and then rushed back down to uh, Hastings in Sussex, where William Duke of Normandy came across the Battle of Hastings. Harold lost the famous uh, biotapestry in which he is seen with an arrow in his eye. And you had, therefore, French rule of of, of England. Uh, it's important to note that Scotland is a separate monarchy with a, that goes back to the Picts, uh, P-I-C-T-S, uh, and the Scotland and England weren't united under the crown until 1603 under James VI of Scotland, first of England after Elizabeth I, uh, forming the House of Stuart. Um, that's not to say that previous English kings had not had designs on Scotland, and indeed we essentially ruled Scotland with through vassal monarchs uh, throughout much of the 13th or 14th century. But yeah, so 1066 is when you get the direct line that comes right down to King uh, Charles now, uh, bloodline. Uh, of course, there are deviations, and sometimes it, you know it's not a directly straight line of father to son, father to son, father to son, um, but it is the same fa family, essentially, 
just in different branches. Uh, so you could say that, I, I mean, the monarchy as an institution goes back really then to Alfred the Great, but this family has in various iterations and cousinages been in charge of Britain since 1066. That's incredible. And I don't, I, have we discussed this before? Because I, I think we may have discussed it before, but it's been a while ago. You said something that they, they feel like divinely, this is their divine purpose. We do believe that they believe that God wants them to have this position, correct? I think so, yes. Um, it was certainly the case that her late majesty believed that her duty was sacred. Mm. Whether she would, whether she or whether the king would go so far as to say that they believe that God wants them to have this, I don't know. That is a question that only um, the king or the late queen could answer. But, um, his, but historically, do we feel like they were given this position because of a higher power? Well, that was certainly the belief, yes. And okay. this is what you, you had the belief in the divine right of kings, which is one of the things that brought uh, the civil war in the 17th century. Uh, to happen, that King Charles I believed he was God's uh, anointed monarch. And indeed, if you remember in the coronation service uh, that we had with the king, the only bit that was not shown was the anointing, because it is a sacred moment. It is a moment between God and the sovereign and the priest conducting the anointing. And it was felt even now, even in a predominantly secular age and um, country, that that was too holy to show on television, just as happened in 1953. Uh, the Queen insisted that, that, that there be the screen so that the viewers at home, the first great television uh, spectacle ever in this country, uh, that was the bit they didn't see. So I think we, we would say that it is very obvious, particularly given that the monarch is the supreme governor of the Church of England, that, he, that the King believes that this is something he has been called to, uh, that there is a sacred nature to it, a sacramental nature, just as you know, priesthood is a sacrament, Marriage is a sacrament. Uh, you know, this will be a point of contention between various groups in the Church of England as to how many sacraments there are. The Catholics say seven. Uh, the Protestants would say many fewer. But it is certainly the case that the late Queen believed that the nature of her duty, and I think the King believes the nature of his duty to be sacramental, to be sacred, and to be, therefore, a, a bond and a covenant between the monarch and God. Oh, I love that. That's so beautiful. Um, when did the royal family lose power? You know, we uh, we didn't really establish what type of power they had previously, but when did they lose whatever power they had? In political terms, relatively recently. Really? Uh, George V, the king's uh, great-great-grandfather. Did I get that right? No, sorry, great-grandfather. Um, was in the 1920s, uh, well, from the very beginning of his reign, he was embroiled in politics because there was um, the passage of the Parliament Act of 1911. Uh, if that had not gone through, the then Liberal Prime Minister was going to ask the King to create, I think it was 300 450 Liberal peers in the House of Lords to override the Conservatives in bulk majority so that they could pass the legislation they wanted. So from the very off, and this was a problem that had simmered away in the last days of Edward VII. He was too ill to do anything about it. So from the very off, George V was embroiled in politics. And then throughout the 1920s, very much so, uh, I, I think he was the last monarch directly to express a preference about who should be the next prime minister. Ooh. Um, which nowadays would be, of course, a great 
well, not necessarily scandal, but certainly there would be strong opinions expressed, then I think it wasn't particularly widely known that this had been the case, except, of course, that everybody in government knew about it, so it's pretty widely known. Um, <laughs> and Queen Victoria, throughout her reign, was not at all backwards in coming forward about expressing her views to her prime ministers. Uh, and it was well known, for instance, that she absolutely loathed Mr. Gladstone and adored Disraeli, not least because he gave her India. Um, there's a famous cartoon of the 19th century of uh, Disraeli presenting Queen Victoria with the Durdham, the, uh, the crown of, of the Raj, and great beaming smile on her face. Uh, so, yeah, relatively recently, within the, let's say, it was, you know, within the last hundred years. But I think Edward VIII was not around long enough. He certainly would have interfered in politics. Of that, I have no doubt whatsoever. King George VI was an entirely different sort of man. And just, you know, as much as he had his preferences, he, we know that he wasn't keen on Churchill to begin with because Churchill had supported Edward VIII in the abdication crisis. Um, we know that they, he later came to respect him greatly as a war leader. Uh, and then in the late, for the late Queen, there are all sorts of rumours and innuendos about which prime minister she preferred to others. She is said to have got on very well with Harold Wilson and uh, with Alec Douglas Hume, not very keen on Macmillan, perhaps. There are you know, rumours about really disliking Margaret Thatcher, but then other people who were around at the time say that's absolute rubbish and they got on very well. So, I mean, who is ever going to know the truth of the relationship between the sovereign and the prime minister? But in terms of actual exertion of power, um, there was the case in the 1970s of the Governor General of Australia uh, recalling uh, the Prime Minister, which was, even then, was considered a step too far, was considered to be something redolent of an earlier age. Uh, and I don't think that would occur now. But you know, in, in practice, there are still great powers uh, in the hands of the monarch. It's just that the King chooses and the late Queen chose not really to use them. Oh, how exciting. Wish that's a thrill to even contemplate. Um all right, how does the royal family work is the next question that's highly searched. And I I believe this translates to what is their exact position today? Are they more of a mascot than a powerful presence? What is your take on on how I mean or, or what do, how do you translate that question? How does the royal family work? Um I think it works in three ways. One is constitutionally. Uh that is to say that without the sovereign there is no legitimacy to any law passed uh, because the, the last thing, uh, when a bill goes through Parliament, it becomes an act. The very last thing said and written on it is uh, in Norman French, uh, le roi se veut, the, the, the king wills it. Uh, or in, when it was Queen Elizabeth II, le, la reine se veut. So without the assent of the monarch, there is no law. And in the court system you know it is the crown versus whoever is uh, when it's not a case of two people bringing uh, bringing suits against each other in a criminal trial it is the crown versus whoever is a defendant um every aspect of our legal system you know for instance the the, the most highly qualified and most highly respected barristers for what you would call an, an attorney uh, an, ad, an advocate attorney at law are king's counsel Mm. They represent the crown in uh, against, uh, you know, in, in criminal cases against malefactors. 
Oh, and just, just, just to interrupt you quickly. So when Prince Harry is taking people to court, is he up against people representing the king? No, because those are civil suits. Okay, okay. If there were a criminal trial, for instance, if someone were uh, put on trial for hacking a phone or you know, stealing some of their data, then it would be the Crown versus, say, Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones. Uh, and so if the Duke of Sussex were called to give evidence, he would, in essence, be giving evidence to representatives of his father. Wow. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, which is why royal participation in criminal trials is not terribly often encouraged. Yeah, uh, might be, there might be considered to be a conflict of interest there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we have the constitutional aspect. Uh, we have the religious aspect, because as I mentioned earlier, the sovereign is the supreme governor of the Church of England, has been ever since Henry VIII, uh, because we have an established church, a church by law established, and the three parts of our constitution are the crown, the church, and parliament, uh, that tripartite system, which is why, for instance, we have bishops in the House of Lords, which strikes some people, not only from other countries, but some people here as bizarre, but it is a, a natural corollary of having an established church. Bishops are not only religious figures, they are lawmakers. Um, and then the, the third element of the, uh, how, what does the royal family do, how does it work, I think is what you might call the soft power. So at home and abroad, they open, they, well, let's, let's go from the top. They are patrons of charities, um, dozens and dozens and dozens, probably in total for all of the royal family, hundreds of charities. And they are patrons of educational bodies and they give uh, royal warrants to commercial bodies. They go around opening hospital wings and wards and schools and summer fits and military exhibitions. You know, they're, they're constantly on the move doing things in the public eye and of course they go abroad as ambassadors of this country yeah. as representatives abroad of of the best of britain in which capacity i think they probably do some of their most important work particularly in the commonwealth uh where uh, many of the commonwealth nations are former uh, colonies of the british empire and of course that that brings with it its own complications and uh, political touch points but i think the fact that uh, the Commonwealth is so closely associated with the late Queen and now the King, and that royal members of the royal family go to the Commonwealth very often in order to be, as it were, ambassadors from the sovereign to the Commonwealth, uh, I think is ex an extremely strong instance of the soft power that the royal family has. Uh, and you could say that, well, part of that soft power is their cultural leadership. You know, when Prince George, Prince Louis, Princess Charlotte come out into public within a day there will be a piece in, say, the Daily Mail or some other newspaper about what they've been wearing, and one of the high street shops will have a range of that sort very quickly, and people who like it will go out and dress their children in the same way. Similarly, when the Duchess of... Uh, sorry, now the Princess of Wales, um, formerly Duchess of Cambridge, her outfits were copied by the high street instantaneously. Right. So there is a sort of, uh, as it were, a cultural power there. I'm not sure it's anywhere nearly as strong as it would have been even 50 years ago, never mind 100 years ago, but it's, it's certainly still there. If for Middle England, uh, the royal family re remains an incredibly important part of their, of their worldview and of the way they see the country. That's beautiful. Um, and that goes well with our next question. 
why does the royal family still exist? Because we tried republicanism and found it wanting. Um, <laughs> and we, like any sensible nation, decided to go back to having a king. Uh, that's that, As flippant as it is, that's basically the answer we had from 1649 until 1658. Well, until 1660, um, actually. We had uh, a, a commonwealth. After the execution, I should say the murder of St. Charles the Martyr, uh, King Charles I, by the ghastly uh, Cromwell, Cromwell reigned as Lord Protector, and indeed was later known as His Highness, and had a form of coronation and wore robes and became a king in all but name, because he recognised that the, actually the, there was something in the English soul, and Cromwell was infuriated by this while then taking advantage of it. Right. Something in the English psyche that wanted to be ruled by um, a quasi-monarchical figure. Because it's probably rather easier to accept rule by a quasi-monarchical figure than it is ruled by just some bloke. Right. Uh, and then when Cromwell died in 1658, his son Richard became protector, Lord Protector. So well, Sounds you know, like it, a succession. Sounds like a... Yep. <laughs> um, but a monarchist, many monarchists would say that actually we, we have had a monarchy for that whole period. He just happened not to be in the country ruling right. in 1649. And indeed, this, this is true in a technical sense as well as in a, a romantic sense. As soon as uh, King Charles I was murdered on the 30th of January 1649, King Charles II became king. The fact that he was exiled in France and didn't take up the reins of power until 1660 is, in a sense, irrelevant. He was king. He was king in exile, but he was king nonetheless. Wow. Um, it just happened that we were ruled by regicide. Um, and so, yeah, why do we still have it? Because I think the memory of that war, the English, well, the War of the Three Kingdoms, the English Civil War, uh, is particularly strong. It was striking to me at the time of the Brexit referendum in 2016, how often comparisons were drawn uh, and how often people harked back to, well, you know, and it is true, I think, you ask any relatively... Uh, well-educated Englishman or woman, which side would you have fought on at Naseby? They can give you an almost instantaneous answer, and they can probably reason it why. So you are, a, you know, you're a roundhead, you're a parliamentarian, or you're a cavalier, you're a royalist. And I think this during the Brexit campaign was um, something that was referred to a great deal. And so the folk memory of that, even though, of course, it's now you know, 350 years ago, 375 years ago. Um, is extremely strong. And so any Republican movement, which probably tracks at about 20 to 30% popularity with the nation, I think will struggle to break through that. Not least because we look at other countries and think, why on earth would you want to elect your head of state as well as your head of government? Why have more politicians? If anything, we should have fewer politicians. Um, so I think there's a very strong feeling here that actually this works for us, that you know, it, the institution needs to evolve with time but predominantly most people are happy with it. Oh, I mean, I, I do believe that we should have less politicians as I sit here in the chaos that is the United States of America. Yeah. <laughs> How does the royal family make their money? Well, until 2012, it was through a thing called the civil list. Um, and then there were, oh, there were also uh, three um, uh, grants in aid, which covered... Uh, royal travel, communications and information, and the maintenance of the palaces. Since 2012, that's been the sovereign grant, which is funded out of the um, 
surplus on the Crown Estate. So that pays for the workings of, of the royal family. Then the sovereign personally has the revenue, uh, the profit from the Duchy of Lancaster. The Prince of Wales has the profit from the Duchy of Cornwall, both of which, by the way, are held in trust. The uh, the, the king does or the king at the moment could not sell off, for instance, the assets of the Duchy of Lancaster. He is the beneficiary of that trust, but the trust itself is inalienable. Similarly, the Duchy of Cornwall, Prince William couldn't turn up tomorrow and say, right, I'm selling off everything that this has, and I'm taking the cash and going to live in Barbados. You know, he he has not that legal right. These are held in trust to provide for the members of the royal family. And since uh, 1992, they've paid voluntarily paid in income tax on those incomes uh, and capital gains tax on anything sold. And for instance, most of the property, art, uh, uh, for instance, jewels, musical instruments, furniture, couldn't be sold by the, by the monarch, by the king. Uh, it's, it's there and it's held in trust. And that's, you know, you get to use it. The things that he does own personally are Sandringham uh, in Norfolk, uh, which was uh, let, which was bought by uh, Edward the Seventh when he was Prince of Wales, I think, um, and therefore his personal property and is handed down as personal property from sovereign to sovereign, from monarch to monarch. And Balmoral, which was bought by Queen Victoria, uh, and the king also owns the Castle of May, which was left to him by uh, her late Majesty the Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth, Queen Mother. Uh, so there are personal properties that are owned by members of the royal family, uh, which, for instance, they can buy and sell as they like, just as the Duke of York has done with his skiing chalet. Um, but the majority of things that provide the income for them are held by the state, essentially. I don't know uh, if the Duke of York ever paid for that. I don't know if the Duke of York ever fully paid for that ski chalet. Well, but... indeed. Yeah, <laughs> quite. He did seem to do very well out of that. That's true. Um, what is your, this isn't um, from our AI questions, but th there is, especially in America, this idea that the royal family it survives on taxpayer money. Um, what is your response to that? Well, it doesn't. It's just <laughs> wrong. Yeah. <laughs> the crown estates, the revenue from the crown estates go to the nation, um, go directly into the treasury, and then about 15% of that revenue is used to fund the activities of the royal family and pay for the maintenance of palaces and so on. But these are, as I said, the, the, the crown estates are held in trust uh, by the nation and are no longer the personal property of the monarch. Since George III, that had been the case. George III essentially came to a deal with the government of the day and said, look, here I will hand over all of this to the nation if you give me some of it back uh, in the civil list to pay for myself and my family and our life and our work. Um, so it, it, it's not that, for instance, when you pay your income tax or when you pay your national insurance, that money is some of it, you know, some tiny percentage of it is then finding its way into King Charles's bank account. It's simply not true. And let's not forget that the royal family has considerable personal wealth and investments uh, accrued over generations, just like many families have, landed or otherwise. And you know, they use that to buy their suits and go shopping in Sainsbury's or whatever, you know, whatever they want to do, go on holiday. Um, so I don't think there's any truth in that accusation. Um, and it's just, it's a rather weak argument used by Republicans who are seeking to attack the basis of monarchy and okay. doing so on the bit, uh, because they think that people are so petty as to 
think that the royal family is robbing them in some way. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's a great response. Uh, who, who is the richest royal family? Which royal family is the richest is the question that came up often. Well, I suppose, I suppose no, it might well be the British royal family. Um, it would have been, I should have thought at, at the time of the French Revolution, probably it would have been the, the French monarchy. Uh, but, you know, no, certainly not. Uh, I wonder, the, the Spanish monarchy probably, yeah, I think most existing monarchies probably have more money than the average. Um, and at the moment, ooh, I mean, it's pure supposition. I'd, I'd imagine it's a toss-up between the British and the Japanese, the British royal family and the Japanese imperial family, because the Japanese imperial family has considerable personal wealth and property. But I really, I couldn't say for sure, because there's, as far as I know, there is no uh, public accounting of what you know, personal wealth the various members of the royal family have. I mean, that's probably on purpose so that people don't. Yeah, rise quite. Up. I mean, I, I, I don't really believe in in any sort of necessity of public figures making their private wealth uh, a matter of public record. Good point. And now a word from our sponsor. When did the royal family change their name to Windsor? That was in 1917. Uh, the 17th of July, 1917, the Royal Proclamation of King George V, that henceforth he and uh, all members of his house would be known by that. I've got the the name, the, the wording is here. Now, therefore, we, out of our royal will and authority, do hereby declare and announce that as from the date of this, our royal proclamation, our house and family shall be styled and known as the house and family of Windsor, and that all the descendants in the male line of our said grandmother, Queen Victoria, who are subjects of these realms, other than female descendants who may marry or may have married, shall bear the said name of Windsor. 1917. And the reason was pretty straightforward. We were at war with Germany, uh, and it was thought to be slightly incongruous that uh, the House of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, uh, which succeeded the House of Hanover, uh, was at war with the, uh, with the Royal House of Prussia, the uh, Hohenzollerns. Uh, so there was a, a period of consultation between the King and uh, Arthur Big, Lord Stamfordham, the private secretary, and all sorts of things were considered, um, you know, many different place names and many different ideas. And in the end, it was settled on Windsor because that's where Windsor Castle is, which is uh, the basis of the badge of the House of Windsor. Uh, and it's, um, you know, it's it's a solidly British, solidly English name. Uh, there are, you know, it is a name that is used by many English families. It just happens also to be the name of the house uh, and surname of the, of the royal family. Uh, and at the same time, George V then restricted the use of princely titles to his very nearest relations, and then two years later stripped all the Germans of their British titles and styles. So it was a, a time at which the monarchy was slimmed down. Mm. Um, and it was you know, it's quite a useful modernising step from a monarch not known for his modernistic tendencies. Well, it and was it's also the source of the only recorded joke of Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, which <laughs> when the king, when King George V Changed the name of the royal family from Saxe-Coburg Gotha to Windsor. Uh, he, who, the Kaiser, remarked jokingly that he looked forward to the next time he saw a production of Shakespeare's *The Merry Wives of Saxe-Coburg Gotha*. <laughs> it was so beautifully executed, but to hear you explain how it happened and why it happened, it feels like such an extreme reaction. But I mean, it was it worked. There, yes. there, you know. there was all sorts of um, uh, there was all sorts of anti-German 
uh, furore during the First World War. Uh, you know, German shepherd dogs were, uh, well, Alsatians and German shepherd dogs were shot in the street. And German composers' works were booed at concerts and things like that. It was, and the same thing happened again in the Second War. Um, though one of the better things in the Second War was that Dame Myra Hess, herself of German extraction, played predominantly German works in the National Gallery every lunchtime. Um, so it was an ex I think it was a perfectly understandable thing to do. And King George V thought of himself as, as he was, as an Englishman. Though he may have had German ancestry, he thought of himself through and through as an Englishman. So it was probably for him actually a rather nice thing to change his name uh, from something he didn't particularly like or associate with to something he certainly did like and associate with. Absolutely. I am going to stress that this is not a question coming from me. Again, I'm going to remind that this is yeah. AI telling me that this is one of the most searched questions in, uh, in search engines online. What royal family did Queen Victoria belong to? Oh, she was a member of the House of Hanover. Um, the House of Hanover succeeded to the British throne in 1714 when the last Stuart monarch, Queen Anne, died uh, because no Catholic could become monarch. Uh, so when Queen Anne died, having had, I think, 18 children, none of whom made it to adulthood, um, the, 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 the throne, the crown, went uh, to, well, the, it should have gone to uh, Sophie of Hanover, who was uh, the, the next non-Catholic person in the line of succession. But she died shortly before Queen Anne, so it went to uh, the King of Han Hanover, George, Georg, who was 56th in line to the throne at the time. Uh, so you had then the House of Hanover was King George I, his son King George II, his grandson King George III, who rather carelessly lost America for us. Uh, then George the Fourth, known to history as uh, you know, as the Prince Regent, because he was Regent of the country uh, for ten years before his father's death. His father suffering from a form of not porphyria, as used to be thought, uh, or madness, as it was generally known. He was suffering from an extremely severe form of manic depression, mm. and by the end of his life was was blind and rendered speechless. So you had George the Fourth, then the Sailor King William the Fourth. He uh, died without any legitimate children. He certainly had children, but none legitimate. So Queen Victoria came to the throne. His niece, the daughter of uh, George IV and William IV's late brother, the Duke of Kent, Edward Duke of Kent, uh, and Queen Victoria acceded. And uh, afterwards, because she married uh, Prince, Alfred, uh, Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, the royal family became the House of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, and then you have Edward VII, George V, and then it changes to the House of Prince. Why do you think Queen Victoria took her husband's last name, but we weren't going to take Prince Philip's? Well, she was very traditional in that way, I think, and believed in her duty as a wife as much as she believed in her duty as a monarch. Um, she was devoted to Prince Albert, as we know, absolutely distraught, disconsolate for decades after he died uh, and sought to memorialize him in every single way. So I think, you know, it would never have occurred to Queen Victoria not to let her husband's children be that house and that and have that surname. Um, whereas I think by 1952, there was a rather different idea, which was the, we have the House of Windsor, this man coming in 
is not. He, he wasn't Prince, Prince Philip was never Prince Consort, which was an official title that Albert had given to him by Queen Victoria. Uh, and she would, I think, were it not for pretty strong political opposition to the idea, I think she, she might, might very well have made Albert a co-monarch, as, for instance, William and Mary were co-monarchs. When Mary, the daughter of James II, came to the throne in, uh, after James II's uh, abdication, uh, when he ran away, um, William became king because she, he was invited to become king, of course, but she also wanted him to become king. So they were co-monarchs. Uh, I don't think there was ever that possibility for the late Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip. There would have been immense political opposition. There was immense political opposition. There was also opposition from within the royal family. Mm, um, I forget about that. <laughs> which, uh, and from the royal household. So I think it simply was never a, a running, a going concern. It was never a running possibility. Um, I do think that that's he, he, what I like about King Charles making Camilla queen consort. It is, it does feel like the king, it's it's a way that he expresses his love and respect for her. Yep, indeed, yep. And let's not forget that they, that later on, the queen did uh, make the surname Mountbatten-Windsor. So... Uh, the, although I think that doesn't uh, does that count for the, the King Charles? I can't remember whether it does or not. I believe Sorry. it. I know it does for Prince Harry, so it might. Yeah, so I imagine yes. it would for King Charles. Yes. Uh, no, you're quite right. It did. Um, it it does indeed. Uh, that was when that was when. Gosh, sorry, my brain has gone to hell. It's. I think it was when Prince Edward was born. Uh, the Queen announced that henceforth she and all her family would be. Mountbatten Windsor, uh, but the house remains the House of Windsor, right? Uh, because there was the there was a famous remark that when um, the Queen came to the throne in 1952, Lord Mountbatten was heard to say at a cocktail party in London, and now the House of Mountbatten Windsor reigns. It doesn't at all. It's the House of Windsor. Their surname may be Mountbatten Windsor, but it's absolutely the House of Windsor, and that was by design of the Queen, right? Um, who I think had a rather ambival ambivalent relationship with. The late Earl Mountbatten of Burma. Are you referring to Queen Elizabeth or the Queen Mother when you say that? Both. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, her late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Um, I think both she and the late Queen Mother thought that he pushed his royal connections and power rather too far. Interesting. Um, well, let's talk about marriage a little bit. Can members of the royal family marry anyone? Uh Yes, unless you're in the top six in line to the throne. Mm. If you are, if you are among the first six in line to the throne, you need the consent of the monarch. It oh. used to be under the Royal Marriages Act of 1772. It was that everybody in line of descent from George II needed the sovereign's permission. Um, but under the 2013 uh, um, uh, Act, that is now only those who are. You know, top six, because I think it was thought that it was ridiculous that people who are, you know, tangentially related, you know, great, 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 great grandsons and cousins, and uh, you know, members of foreign royal families, for instance, needing the, the sovereign's permission. It was it was thought to be rather silly, uh, given that the possibility of their inheriting the throne is so desperately remote. Uh, and so it was changed at the same time as primogeniture was removed from the from royal succession. So this was Royal Succession Act of twenty thirteen after the Perth conference, when David Cameron said to all the other Commonwealth uh, and Dominion people, do you mind awfully if uh, this is what we get on and do? And they said no. So, for instance, if 
Prince George were to die young, Prince Charlotte, Princess Charlotte would become queen. No, it wouldn't devolve to Prince Louis and then to Princess Charlotte, uh, as would have been the case before then. Right. So Prince Charles had to ask the queen not once but twice for permission to marry? Just so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. If you go on, uh, if you go online, you can find a list of all the people who have ever been gazetted as being granted permission by the sovereign to marry under the Royal Marriage Act 1772. And it is quite an extraordinary list because there are people there whose connection to the royal family is just, you know, sort of at the end of a fingernail's worth of, of connection. But still, they are bound by that law or were bound by that law and no longer are. How that, that's so exciting. Here's a a very interesting question. And there were a couple of questions like this. I just chose to pick the most, I don't know, delicately worded one. Why did members of the royal family marry their cousins? Well, because in the first instance, they had to marry someone royal. Right. Um, and as a consequence, there weren't that many people to choose from. Yeah. Um, it's an options. Yeah. Um, so, well, the, people forget that the, um, uh, the Queen and Prince Philip were cousins. Right. Not first cousins, uh, although first cousin marriage uh, did happen occasionally, very occasionally. Um, but they were cousins because of their uh, common ancestry in Queen Victoria. Correct. That's right. And indeed, um, the king and both of his wives are, have been cousins. So Diana was the king's seventh cousin once removed, and Camilla is the king's ninth cousin once removed. I don't think I knew about Queen Consort Camilla. That's wild to me. Yeah, wow. they share descent from, uh, I think it's Henry Pelham, Duke of Newcastle. Interesting. Second Duke of, the second Duke of Newcastle. Wow, that is wild. All right. Can members of the royal family adopt children? They can. And it would be an interesting test case because until relatively recently, adopted children weren't uh, wouldn't, for instance, inherit titles. But I believe that the law has now changed. And for instance, if a, if a duke couldn't have children and adopted a child, that adopted child would become the next duke. Wow. Um, so, you know, the question would be if, for instance, um, a king, a reigning sovereign were not able to have children and therefore adopted, what would that do to royal succession? Uh, I think there might be a very quick shuffle in Parliament to pass a bill saying, actually, no, it doesn't count in this instance. Yeah, that's crazy. That's good. That would be a very interesting experiment to witness. Uh, why does the royal family name their children after previous members of the royal family? For instance, Prince George, you know, um, Prince Charles. Is there something, is that protocol? Is it just tradition? What What do you know about that? I think it's for the same reason that anybody names their children after other members of their family and why you get you know, great dynasties, certainly of American families, all with the same name, and then numbering themselves as though they are monarchs of their own little glen. <laughs> you think, of, think of the Rockefellers or the Gettys. God knows how many John D. Rockefellers we're on to now. Fourth, fifth, sixth, who knows? <laughs> and the Astors doing the same. Uh, I think, yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a matter of tradition and of respect. Um, and there is a relatively limited number of names that you can choose if you want to go with traditional names. Uh, so, you know, you look to your family, you look to previous instances of what you consider to be good kings. Yeah, I always thought it was very interesting that the Queen chose Charles, given that uh, Charles I is not considered by many, they're wrong, to be a great king. 
uh, they are wrong. It's a martyr and a great king. And Charles II, the Merry Monarch, uh, seems best remembered in popular culture for reopening theatres and having lots of mistresses. Uh, so, you know, it was interesting that she went with that. Um, I, I mean, it's it's just preference, personal preference. George, of course, uh, for Prince George, it was chosen because uh, it was a nod to the Queen's father, of whom she was exceptionally fond. Uh, Louis was obviously a nod to uh, Lord Mountbatten, the King's honorary grandfather, as he called him. Um, and Charlotte, well, there have been lots of queens and princesses, certainly since the Hanoverians called Charlotte rather nice name uh personal opinion unrelated to fact what is your take on harry and megan naming their daughter lilibet which was the private was nickname exceptionally presumptuous <laughs> uh and in in and as such entirely typical of those two people i completely agree what a wild just i guess the word assumption is the only word to use that i just to, to be so critical of the family and then to take a private nickname and, and name yeah. after that for the world to call her for the next X amount of years, infinity. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. it takes your breath away. It really does. Um, well, it would do if we didn't know the character of the Duchess of Sussex. Can members of the royal family vote? Legally, yes. By convention, those the, the sovereign and those members of the royal family close to him or her in line of succession, don't. Um, I've never asked a member of the royal family. I, I think it would be, I mean, I, there is a, uh, an old-fashioned thing that one doesn't ask how someone else votes. I certainly wouldn't, you know, walk up to the Princess Royal, uh, happy birthday, Princess Anne, by the way, um, and um, say, you know, who did he vote for at the last election if he did in fact vote? I think that would be rather presumptuous and arrogant. Uh, I'm sure that you know, junior or mi minor members of the royal family, to use that rather uh, uh, unpleasant term, do vote. Why shouldn't they? They're citizens, after all. They pay their taxes, we assume. Uh, they therefore have a right to parliamentary representation, and particularly if they don't lead public lives. But I think the, the convention is that those leading public lives, working members of the royal family, don't vote. That's great to know. Uh, do you think that it eats at somebody like King Charles when he was Prince Charles or Prince William, who are, you know, they are clearly highly educated on certain political topics and passionate about them behind the scenes? Um, I, I wouldn't have thought so. Certainly not in the case of the Prince of Wales, Prince William. I think everything I see of, uh, and read of him and everything I'm told about him uh, He's a solid, dependable bloke who does his duty. And he would accept the, the trade-off for the life he enjoys and the position he holds, and one day the, the immense position he will hold, is that he does not have certain rights and privileges that other people have. Mm. So, for instance, he doesn't vote or doesn't exercise his right to vote. Um, I'm sure that, and I don't think this is in any way les majesté, I'm sure that the king, when he was a younger man, will have been irked by it because he's a man with an immense social conscience and great passion and uh, conviction. And I think he will probably have thought, well, like, why the bloody hell can't I vote when everybody else can? <laughs> I, should think, I should think that by now, given his, uh, given his wisdom and sagacity and experience, I should have thought that he'd have made more than his peace with the fact that he doesn't exercise that right. Love it. Can members of the royal family be arrested or go to jail? Yes. Yes, they can. Um, 
I, I can't think of a recent instance. Well, apart from Princess Anne's speeding fines. Um, <laughs> oh, and of course, Princess Anne was um, uh, had to pay a fine when one of her dogs bit. Uh, was it another person or uh, another dog? I can't remember. Many, many years ago. So yes, they they are subject to the law just as everybody else. Um, except in in a in a sort of philosophical sense, the king isn't because he is the fountain of all law and justice. So while he must abide by it, you know. The, this was one of the things about the trial of Charles the First. He he asked the court, under whose authority do you bring me here? You know, who is like you? You can't have Rex versus Rex, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's one of the many reasons why that trial was illegal and his execution was murder. Sorry to keep harking on about it, but it, you know, it rankles still. <laughs> oh, that's that's why we love you. Um, all right. Are members of the royal family allowed to be on social media? I know that I think it was in Finding Freedom that the author dis- authors discuss that Harry had a secret Instagram account and him and Meghan followed each other in secret on Instagram. So what are and then we see today that the royal family is on Instagram, although I imagine that that is managed by staff. Um, what's yeah. your what is the official answer and what is your opinion on the royals having a presence online? Well, the official answer is that there are official Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and I'm sure although I, I won't use it because it's Chinese uh, propaganda, TikTok. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that there are channels there on every conceivable social medium um, because it is a modern way of communication. I know that there are. You know, junior members of the royal family who have their own Instagram accounts um, and just as anybody else could and particularly those who aren't right in the heart of the working royal family I don't see why they shouldn't um, and it's on them if something goes wrong great answer you know, if, they, if, they, if they post something inadvisable or inadvised rather or, or if they embarrass themselves and that causes embarrassment to the royal family I'm sure that the king will make that displeasure known and they'll get Absolutely. stiff talking to him Absolutely. Which members of the royal family have security? I this again, just to reiterate these. Uh, this is artificial intelligence telling yep. us what questions are searched the most. I'm assuming, based on this question, that this is somebody that is in that is somehow invested in the Prince Harry security drama happening in the UK, um, and they're wanting to know who gets security within the royal family and, and what and maybe. I won't ask you to go into Harry, but perhaps they're wondering why Harry wouldn't. Well, it's really terribly simple. The only people, the only members of the royal family who have 24-hour protection are the king and queen, the princess, uh, prince and princess of Wales, and their children. Um, other members of the royal family, for instance, the Duke and Duchess of Edinburgh and their children, and Princess Royal and, uh, and her, well, in fact, her children never really engage in royal duties, but they have protection when they're on duty and they will have protection at things like royal weddings and you know, large public events where all the royal family is together because it's obviously a security nightmare. Um, <clears throat> Princess Beatrice and Princess Eugenie had security, but that was removed when they became essentially private individuals by getting jobs. Uh, the Duke of York has security, which is paid for by the king personally. Uh, and that's it. Other you know, junior members of the royal family don't, uh, and as I say, the Duke, Duke of Edinburgh, Duchess of Edinburgh, Princess Anne, only have security when they're on the job. Otherwise, they they go about their lives. You know, Princess Anne goes to Gattenden and sits and watches telly, and she's un, unharmed and unmolested because, I'm, you know, why would you bother? 
I suppose. Uh, there was the famous occasion when uh, a man got into Princess Anne's car and she famously told him where to go uh, yeah. <laughs> on the mall. But you know, they, they, they live largely private lives when they're not opening village fets and doing charity work and being university chancellors and that sort of thing. Um, I know. I, I have my thoughts on it. I understand why Harry is so, is so concerned about it because of the way that he lost his mother. But I also yeah. think there's that Barbara Streisand effect where the more you talk about it and the bigger hell you raise, the more yeah. you are increasing the odds that a crazy person is going to you know, hear, see that, that this is a weakness for you and take advantage of it. Yes, I think that's the case. And we know that security is no guarantee of safety. Ronald Reagan was shot and he was surrounded by the security service, by the Secret Service. Um, so, and the Pope, if you remember, John Paul II was, uh, was shot too. And there isn't much better security than the Swiss Guard. Uh, so, and of course, the Queen's bedroom was invaded. Everybody... Yeah. Seems I've to have forgotten that this occurred. Yes. And the, the Queen woke up to find some lunatic at the bottom. This is the late Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, I should say, not Camilla. Um, found some bloke sitting at the end of the bed. Um, so, and there was, in fact, there was the man who tried to get into Windsor Castle with a crossbow oh, last year. That's right. Uh, so even if you have security, it's no guarantee of safety. But I think that, that I can understand why the Duke of Sussex has a, a more than usually security conscious mind but i agree with you that it seems that by pursuing this he only makes the likelihood of something similar to what happened to his mother happened to him it's unfortunate and it's 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 just it's all it's it's sad to watch too because you want to go like just don't it's okay it's okay yeah um what royal family was murdered? And I believe this is in reference to the Romanov family, but maybe it's this assassination of Louis Mountbatten. Can you get into either or both? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Um, the Russian imperial family was murdered by uh, Bolshevik soldiers in 1918, a year after the Russian Revolution, on the orders of Lenin. Um, and uh, it was one of the most appalling and bloodthirsty acts in recent history, given that the the children were. Oh. I mean, it was an appall. It was a, an appalling and brutal murder where they they were all shot because the uh, imperial princesses had jewelry sewn in, sewn into the linings of their dresses. The bullets deflected and they weren't killed, so they were then bayoneted and then their bodies were hacked up. They were thrown into a pit. Acid was thrown on it and they were burnt. And it was yeah, it was appalling. Oh. Uh, and then in 1979, Earl Mountbatten. Of Burma, Admiral of the Fleet, Lord, uh, previously Lord Louis Mountbatten, the uh, honorary grandfather to the king, whom we mentioned earlier, was murdered by the IRA uh, while on his boat. Uh, and he was not alone. He was with family and with a local boy who was out there helping in pilot boat uh, who was killed. Um, other members of his family were very badly injured, uh, and he himself was blown apart. Uh, murdered savagely by the Irish Republican Army, uh, which is why it was an extraordinary act of strength and duty and obligation when the late Queen and late Duke of Edinburgh went to Ireland that both of them shook hands with Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, who are widely considered to have, if not planned the murder themselves, then to have given it their consent. That is, I, I, as soon as you said that, I thought about it, and not to just obsess over Harry and Meghan, but it just shows 
that the royal family truly they stem on faith and forgiveness and yes, moving it's forward. True Christianity. Yes, faith, forgiveness, and looking forward and not dwelling on the past. And you see so much dwelling on the past over here in the States with the former royals. Yeah, yeah, indeed. They, it's um, a beautiful example. Because they live in a bubble, I suppose, they uh, don't find it as easy to move on. And I must say, because they don't seem to share the kings and the late queens' Christian faith, so perhaps aren't so thoroughly imbued with the spirit of forgiveness. Interesting, interesting. And which royal family is the oldest? Do we know? Yeah, it's the Japanese imperial family. Ah. Um, the uh, Japanese imperial family is said to begin with uh, the Emperor Jimu, who is probably a figure of legend or myth. But the first absolutely verifiable evidence is the Emperor Kinmei in the 6th century. So we are now in the 21st century. You've got 15 centuries of unbroken monarchy there. Uh, so it's the oldest continuous hereditary monarchy in the world. The Norwegian uh, royal family goes uh, from the 9th century, from 872. That's pretty old. Um, you know, as I, as I said earlier, we're uh, in direct succession from William the Conqueror in 1066. That's you know pretty old as well. Uh, the the Catholic uh, monarchy of Spain, the kings of uh, Spain, come from the House of Habsburg, and they combine the succession to the royal houses of Castile and Leon and Aragon, which were 10th and 11th centuries. Uh, so, you know, there are quite a few uh, very old monarchies indeed, but the Japanese is the one that we absolutely know to be uh, the oldest. Perfect. Um, was Princess Diana royal before marriage? No. No, she was royal by marriage, just as Catherine Middleton became royal by marriage, just as Sophie uh, uh, Wessex became, Sophie Edinburgh now, became royal by marriage, uh, which is why it's not, strictly speaking, correct to call her Princess Diana. It's Diana, Princess of Wales, just as it was never Princess Catherine, for instance. But, you know, these things are matters of convention and sort of get lost in translation. Yeah, I think no, the I, only always, people... I always stress it's search engine optimization. I know it looks absolutely, but it's all about search engine optimization. Well, I have no doubt, darling Kinsey, in your case, that you, it is absolutely at the forefront of your mind. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the only people who are royal are those who are born royal. And but but can you tell me a little bit if you're familiar with it? They do say that Princess Diana's family was more aristocratic or more, you know, seeped into. I don't know that she had more history there than King Charles's family. Is that true? Well, that is a rather old-fashioned and snobbish attitude of old English families to the fact that uh, in 1714 a load of Germans came across and were imposed upon them because they can point, you know, they can point out that their direct patrilineal descent is far older and more English, therefore. Uh, <laughs> so. The George the uh, First's mother was a granddaughter of King James the First and Sixth, first King of England and Scotland together. Uh, so that was how he George the First came to get the throne. Uh, so yes, he's a a relatively distant relationship, but the, nothing unusual. You'd had grandsons and, and inheriting and you know, great grandsons. It, it just happens. But there is a sort of snobbism that really. And particularly the case once you had Albert 
come over and, and marry Victoria. The, there was a an, an English aristocratic, uh, and uh, who's to say it's right or wrong, British aristocratic idea that they were ruled by a load of middle class Germans. Um, so that's where it comes from. But I mean, it's you look at the family tree, you can you can trace a line directly from the current king right back to William the Conqueror. And if you follow the family, the, the old fashioned family tree, right back to the Bible. So, um, you know, it's, it's splitting hairs, really. That's oh, that's that's hilarious. All right. So was when uh, this was uh, searched, I've seen this discussed a lot. Was Princess Diana related to Winston Churchill? Yes, they were distant cousins. Um, they they had great, great, great grandparents in common, I think. So I've got my greats right. Uh, it goes back <laughs> to the 18th century. So Win- Winston Churchill's surname was, in fact, Spencer Churchill, ah. uh, and which is why he's, he always signed his initials WSC. Oh. Um, um, yeah, Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill, his full name. Uh, and there are some members of the Spencer family, as in the Earl Spencer, as, uh, who called themselves Spencer Churchill, and the Duke of Marlborough is Spencer Churchill. So they're cousins, distant cousins, but cousins nonetheless. I think I've heard Earl Spencer or someone repeat a story about Winston coming to their family library and wanting to smoke in the middle of the library and then being like, please don't, please don't do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, where is Princess Diana buried? I obviously know this, but AI tells uh, us this is a unique yes. question. She is buried uh, at Altrup, the Spencer family house in Northamptonshire. Uh by the, ex- I think it was her wish, but it was certainly Earl Spencer, her brother Charles Spencer's express wish that she be buried there. Um, and then you have the Diana Monument in Kensington Palace Gardens. Beautiful. Why is Princess Diana so loved? Well, this rather touches on what we were discussing in the last podcast that we did. Um, um, I think because she was something different. She was not seen upon her marriage to the now king in 1918, 1981 as just another one in the line of quite dowdy, horsey country uh, country ladies. Uh, she was young, she was pretty, she was winningly shy and demure. Uh, she was stylish later on. Uh, she seemed to be relaxed and funny. You know, she was a breath of fresh air, according to to her admirers, rather than the sort of stuffy, tweedy, old-fashioned 1950s-ish court. Um, And I think a lot of the work she did, particularly after uh, she and the King separated, work with Mother Teresa of Calcutta, work with landmine victims, work with HIV and AIDS patients. It was good charity work. It was caring and kind. And I think people felt that they could relate to Diana more than they could to other members of the royal family, uh, despite the fact she was the daughter of an earl. Gosh, wonderful. All right. Another opinion-based question, but highly searched. Will the royal family take Harry back? Will the royal family forgive Harry? What is your, as a historian, ah. studied this family, you've seen, we've just talked about forgiveness. What is your personal opinion on the Harry saga? I think the possibility remains that the royal family will welcome Harry back if he is no longer married to Meghan. So 
when she inevitably dumps him to go off and marry someone richer and more famous when she tries to become president, um, then I think there, is, there will be the possibility of a, of a long, gentle, private reintroduction to the royal family. Um, because let's not make any bones about it, he's going to be utterly devastated. Mm. He is going to be a man without mooring, without anchor, adrift in a sea of probably quite self-pitying unhappiness. Um, and it would be unusual, I think, for any family to exclude one of their members, no matter how badly he'd behaved, no matter what he said about them in public. I think most families will would, in those circumstances, privately, if not publicly, try to offer assistance. And I think that seems to me the most likely contingency. If they confound us all and remain married, then I think the possibility is practically zilch. That's really interesting. And I, I personally agree with you. Have you thought around the divorce? Have you thought or contemplated at all what would happen with the children? Because I think that they personally raised them so far away from the monarchy and outside of the public eye so that they never could be roped into that world. It's like they, yeah. that world never owed or never owned them. So, you know, any sort of judge over here in America, I mean, I don't, I don't know if the, a judge would actually be the one that would have the control over that, but might look at the fact that they've been shielded for so long and say, I'm going to side with the mother here who's going to have primary custody because it's unfair to go thrust them into the spotlight in the UK. Yeah, instead you just thrust them into the spotlight in the States, which is a much less forgiving press to people in the public eye, I think. Yeah. Um, I I would imagine that, it. well, first of all, it would depend whether the divorce case was tried, whether it was here or the States. Um, secondly, it does seem to be a general principle that custody is awarded to the mother. Um, let's hope that whichever judge comes before sees what a heinous and dreadful character she is and decides to ignore that. Um, I'm sorry, on the, on the subject of the Duchess of Sussex, I don't feel that being politic is any more necessary given that she's done so publicly what she's done over recent years. Um, and I think that, I mean, logic and compassion are two different things, but they must work together in instances of this nature. I think the logical thing would be, here is this large, loving, secure family with access to the best schools in the world, and lots of pr private places like Balmoral Castle of May Sandringham, where these children could be brought up in a safe, loving, private environment, or at least not quite so public environment, let's send them there. Um, and I think that would be both logical and, and compassionate. Because of course, if, you depends... look, if you look at the, you know, if you look at Prince George, Princess Charlotte, and Prince Louis, we only truly, I mean, we only see them when the family wants us to see them. And yep. you've seen Prince William, the Prince of Wales, get in photographers' faces when that rule is broken. And Indeed. so it, it's typically, uh, you know, respected that we only see those children when they, that when it's on the royal family's terms. So I yeah. do think that, that what you just said is incredibly fair. And this, of course, is bearing in mind that they go to uh, go to school. Yeah. They go to a, a normal school. I find it's an independent school as opposed to a state school, but it's a normal school with lots of other children. And they're, I mean, how many times have you known any photographs appear of them in their school uniform coming out of the gates, which was not expressly intended to be the case by the Prince of Wales and his publicity team? Now, I think there 
that no judge would need worry on that score. Good point. All right, here's another uh, question that's looked up quite often. Will the royal family be abolished? Again, this is your opinion since we don't know where, where what will, what, we don't know what will happen. Well, it could be, but at the moment I see absolutely no reason why it would be. Um, there is absolutely, there's nothing stopping other than you know, more than a thousand years of history and tradition and good practice. Uh, there's nothing stopping some revolutionary government getting rid of the monarchy uh, because it's happened in so many other countries illegally, but still it happens. Uh, but as we said at the beginning of, this, of the program, I just don't see that it's desired by the people. We have, you know, re republicanism tracks, at, as I said, about 20, between 20 and 30 percent support. Sometimes it peaks, sometimes it troughs. But let's say about a quarter of the public would prefer to have uh, a, an elected head of state. Well, that's fine. But that means that three quarters of the public want a monarchy. Mm -hmm. And the support for uh, the next generation is even stronger than it is for the king and queen. The support for the public polling support for Prince and Princess of Wales and their children is greater still than that for the king and queen. So at least for the next two generations, I don't see the possibility of uh, abolition of the monarchy. Fascinating. All right, David, how can people keep up with you if they'd like to follow your TV appearances and see what you're doing? Well, they can follow me on Twitter and my Twitter handle is at David underscore Old Bolt, O-L-D-B-O-L-T. And they can also, uh, through my Twitter biography, find my YouTube channel. Uh, but on YouTube, if you search for at David Oldroyd Bolt with a hyphen, you will find me there. And I tend to upload most of what I do on television and things like this. So you can see my library of appearances, as it were. And please, anybody get in touch through Twitter. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Love to interact with you, whether you agree with me or even more so if you disagree with me. Let's have a good old argument. Um, and I would be so grateful if any of your listeners uh, got in touch and gave me their feedback, because without it, we can't do what we do. David, it's been such a pleasure. Again, I trust you more than artificial intelligence any day. And I'm so glad that you were here to help me knock this out. Well, Kinsey, thank you very much for having me on again. It's always a pleasure. And I hope that my intelligence, so not artificial, has been up to scratch. <laughs>